This is a CBC Podcast. So there's this memory I've had for a very long time, ever since I was really young. I was walking to the flower shop with my mom and my little brother, Kian, when we ran into our neighbor and her big, fluffy black dog, Mopsy. So Kian and I went up to Mopsy to give him, like, a good pat and some nice scratches, you know, the standard stuff when you come across a cute dog. But then, all of a sudden, he lunged at Kian and sunk his teeth into his legs. I can't seem to remember too much after that, but I've been skittish with dogs ever since. Every time I see one on the sidewalk, I'll kind of like lean away, or whenever I meet a friend's dog, I just, I kind of politely decline to pet them. I even kind of crushed Kian's dream of getting a dog because I was always so worried that it would attack him again. But when I asked my mom about this, well, this happened. Mopsy? Darling, I, I don't think Mopsy ever attacked Kian. Mopsy is like my favorite dog and I've never seen Mopsy attack anyone. And no, I think I would remember if a dog attacked my baby. And Kian? No, I would have remembered something like that. That didn't happen. Plus, if it did, it would have come up another time, one of the other times when I'd seen Mopsy. Like my leg getting mauled by a dog, I'd have at least a tiny scar. So where did this memory come from? If no one else remembers it, did any of it even really happen? Did I make it all up in my head? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are just so many good questions out there that you just really want to have answered. Why do we laugh? How do animals know where they're going? What can I do when I'm anxious? How can I keep eating meat without destroying the planet? Why do we love junk food so much? And how reliable are our memories? Talking to my mom and Kian about this got me really second-guessing myself. I have no idea how this memory kind of burrowed its way into my brain. I mean, I don't know. I don't get what the point of your brain telling you something happened when it didn't. Maybe like the day that you had the dream, assuming it was a dream. I'm going to assume it was a dream. That seems like the greatest conclusion to me. I think maybe like we had gone out on a walk and we had seen Mopsy and I was playing with Mopsy or something and then you went to bed angry or upset maybe and then your brain just kind of scanned over your memories and just kind of made this weird hybrid dream which is like that had your emotions and like actual memories i don't i don't know so if kian thinks i can mistake a dream for a memory what about all my other memories how do i know that they're real we're using our memories right now so we think we know how they work we think they work pretty well, because they do, but um, it's often really challenging to convince people that those memories uh, may not be as reliable as we think they are. That's Ayana Thomas. She's a professor of psychology at Tufts University who studies how memory works and how it changes as we get older. A big part of Ayana's work involves giving people memory tests, and since I'm feeling a little shaky about my memory. I had to ask her to put mine to the test. 
Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you uh, a list of words. I'm going to read you more words than I know that you can remember. And after a short amount of time, I'm going to ask to see if you can recall, you know, you can just write them down as many words as you can. You ready? Sure. Bed. Nap. Drowsy. So I'm the kind of guy who will walk into a room and completely forget why I came in there in the first place. Flower. Toast. So I got to be honest, I'll be proud of myself if I get more than three or four words right. Slice. Wine. Jelly. Go for it. I'm so nervous. It's okay. Just do your best. What's the first word that you can think of? The first word. Drowsy? No, that wasn't it. Put it down. Oh, wait, hold on. I realize you're probably saying the second type of flower because, because, because you were talking about food things. Awake, wake, like without the A. Loaf, sandwich, rye, butter, jelly, flour, the other type of flour, drowsy, bread. Oh, loaf? Did I not say loaf? So, you know what? Um, I never said the word bread. I never said that word. Hold on. Say what now? This is my standard example for how we can create false memories. You just had a false memory. I read 30 words and you got uh, you got about half. That's really good, actually. So this suggests to me that you actually have a pretty good memory. But like almost everyone I've ever done this demonstration, you also demonstrate susceptibility to memory distortion or creating false memories by having remembered bread when I didn't even re- read it to you. Oh, well, I mean, it's almost reassuring to know that you're able to trick large groups of people into thinking of the word bread. It's, I've pretty much been incepted. I'm... <laughs> you were incepted. <laughs> but how did that even happen? Yeah, so I think what's going on maybe in your brain is that every time I say a word like sandwich, rye, butter, you're activating that concept of sandwich and rye and butter, but you're also activating information that's related. In this case, bread. What you're doing when you say bread is you're making a misattribution. This concept is so activated in my brain, it must have happened. That's a distortion. Right. Okay. So it's like when you see a funny post you want to go back to share with your friends on Instagram. But then when you search for it, you realize you actually saw it on TikTok and you're on a totally different app. That's a memory distortion. And apparently we have them all the time, even in our sleep. I often have very vivid dreams. And so I'll wake up from a dream. I will think that what happened in the dream happened in reality. And if my husband's in that dream, I'll talk to him about something that happened and he'll say, that never happened. And and I'll have to go back and think, wait, was I just dreaming? That's crazy. That happens to me really often. Okay, actually, I have a really good example. So I had this kind of unpleasant dream where my brother got like attacked by a friend's dog. And for years, like I always kind of had a more negative opinion of dogs 
because of this one incident. So what a great example,、uh, and it really illustrates the consequences of holding these mem- false memories or memory distortions, right?、Um, you, your behavior changed. You, you didn't like dogs, and you were worried about your brother. I think about memory as any change in behavior. That's a result of some prior experience, so that's a really broad definition. Because you can think about how it's not necessarily just remembering something that、um, I did this morning or last week or even ten years ago, but it could be things that I'm not even consciously aware of. But my behavior, the way I'm making decisions, the way I'm perceiving the world. Has changed because of some prior experience. Psychologists like Ayana have been researching false memory for decades, conducting all kinds of experiments just to test how reliable or unreliable our memories can be. I have a colleague who did this、um, study. So she got childhood photos of her participants. And she put a picture of them as a child into a hot air balloon. This experiment was done in 2002 by Dr. Kimberly Wade, a cognitive psychologist from the UK. And she said, "Hey, I was interviewing your family members, and they told me that all of these different things happened to you as a child. And one was, do you remember taking a hot air balloon ride?" And the participants would say, "No, I have no memory of this、uh, because it never happened." But when Dr. Wade showed them the fake photos and interviewed them again, she found that 50% of the subjects had complete or partial false memories. And then they would come to believe that they took this hot air balloon ride, and they developed these whole stories to support a memory for something that never happened. And it's just like, because I'm just I'm baffled. Like a hot air balloon is such a big thing. Like it's not something easily. Like you can't easily trick someone. You're you're like way above the sky. <laughs> it's really it's amazing that these folks in this study could come to believe that something so unusual happened to them. Right.、Um, I have another colleague who convinced. Participants in his study that they, when they were children, they were at a wedding with their parents, and they were running around, and they ended up knocking over、uh, a bowl of punch onto the parents of the bride. Wow, it's just so strange to think that like people are being convinced of fake memories by other people saying, you know what? I remember you. You ruined John and. Joanne's wedding. Yeah, what we as memory researchers are able to do, and what we've shown, is that people can come to develop false memories, but only for things that are in the realm of possibility in their lives, in their world, things that are part of their belief system, things that are plausible to them. That explains why my dream felt like a real memory for such a long time. I knew everyone that was in it, including Mopsy. It happened in a familiar place, and it just seemed like any other day. 
It's kind of wild to think how the hot air balloon study was done almost 20 years ago, way before the age of deepfakes and AI, and it was still able to dupe so many people. And I mean, in a, in a time where even I can Photoshop and deepfake an image, it feels like it's like a way easier to trick people into believing things that just wouldn't have happened. So like, how is technology affecting our ability to remember? That is a question that psychologists are actively engaged with and studying. The world of deep fakes is a troubling world because it really is very easy to get people to believe things that simply are not true. And it doesn't even just have to be, you know, deep fake pictures, but it's just can be presenting information on social media. And so disinformation and misinformation spreads so rapidly because of the ways our memories work. I know that disinformation and misinformation, especially on the internet, can be pretty dangerous. I actually did an episode all about that last season. Which, by the way, you should go check out if you haven't already. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. So, Iona says all kinds of things can influence our memories. Whether it be photoshopped pictures, fake posts on social media, and even weird, oddly realistic dreams. That's one of the reasons why Ayana thinks it's important to educate people about how memory works in the first place. And it starts by understanding its purpose. Memories serve a number of different functions. One, they allow us to learn things, right? Uh, we can learn new information and we can navigate the world based on what we've learned. Memories allow us to have expectations about the future. So the more people that I talk to about, you know, these kinds of distortions, I'm hoping the more likely they are to realize that, oh, hey, I can't necessarily trust my memory for everything because it could have been influenced by these other sources of information. But I also think it's really important to, to, to know that while we think that memory is about remembering the past, I, I don't think that memory's for that. I think memory is really about predicting the future. That's a really interesting take. I, I mean, I, I think about memories as a way to look back into the past, but it's like the age old saying, like we study history so we don't repeat it. And it definitely makes sense that it's kind of like, it can be also used as a learning experience for the future. Like we're all kind of like our own fortune tellers in a way. <laughs> That's a really great way to think about it. I might use that. I will give you credit. Um, we are our own fortune tellers. What a great idea. But fortune tellers can only see so many visions in their crystal ball, right? I mean, what about memories? Where are they stashed in the brain? And like, how can I have so many in my head at any given time? When we think about a human brain, it's three pounds, it's 86 billion brain cells, 100 trillion connections between 86 billion brain cells. The computational possibilities there are kind of bananas. Like it's, it's really 
an impressive organ that can you know, make things like memories and consciousness and so on possible. Steve Ramirez is the guy to talk to about this. He's an assistant professor at Boston University who studies the neuroscience of memory. That means he knows what memories look like in the brain. He tells me that memories aren't actually all located in just this one spot, but rather they're spread throughout. Like a huge spider web. When you recall a memory, and let's say we're still going in and imaging your brain and zooming into the brain to see what's active, it wouldn't just be one particular corner of the brain that's involved for recalling what you had for dinner last night, for example. It would be this kind of what we call network of activity that's distributed throughout the brain that's making it possible. Uh, being able to recall those vivid details and to the, to the point of you know, being able to close our eyes and almost relive that experience. I think that there's a very real magic to memory when we, when we actively try to let a memory consume us in a sense. So every time I try to remember something, all of these different parts in my brain kind of turn on at the same time to piece together the details of that memory. Like when I think about my favorite pepperoni pizza from my local pizza joint. I can remember exactly what it looks and smells like. I can like pretty much taste the saltiness of the pepperoni and the gooey stretchy cheese. But even though Steve says we have this immense amount of brain power, why can my memory be such a hit or miss sometimes? Why can I remember something that happened years ago like it was yesterday, but then I'll go off and forget where I put my sweater? Oh, we're, we're two peas in a pod here because my memory is awful. I think that the things that we want to remember, for instance, I think it just means that if something that you happen to care about or something that maybe you can infuse it with some kind of emotional value so that it can matter to you. So I guess that's why my false memory of Kian left such a big impact on me, because I thought something horrible had happened to someone I really, really care about. But, you know, don't, don't tell him I said that. Steve says our brains can sometimes dupe us into misremembering things because that's just how human memory works. It's not like a video camera we can just switch on and replay the episodes of our lives over and over again. Over and over again. Over and over again. I think that maybe we can think of it as every time that we recall a memory, we're adding new filters on Instagram to the image, or we're hitting save as on the Microsoft Word file where, you know, we're hitting save as, save as, and at some point it does begin looking very differently. And usually some, a lot of the big picture details, the gist of a memory, uh, we're remarkably good at remembering for the most part. But now both the details and sometimes even entire events can be made up and can become um, a very real fiction in the brain, especially in the form of false memories. After talking to Ayana about her psychological experiments, I can see how easy it is for people to believe totally made up events. But Steve, the neuroscientist, he's actually been able to implant false memories straight into the brains of mice. Like the movie Inception, but in real life. If you can steal an idea from someone's mind, why can't you plant one there instead? For this project, 
the honest, you know, five-year-old in me is like, we did it because we thought it was really cool. Like we thought that, would it be possible to pull an inception in mice? Because that would teach us a lot about how memories work and having this kind of control over the process of memory itself. When we started that, those experiments, the idea here was that we could go into the brain and we could artificially jumpstart a memory. But in order to do that, Steve and his research partner, Shu, first had to find the cells that hold onto a memory. That's like looking for a needle in a haystack factory. I can't help but picture little white mice wearing these little teeny tiny mad scientist helmets for this, like upside down colanders with wires sticking out the top. But Steve says they use something even cooler, optogenetics, shooting lasers into the brain. How cool is that? We can genetically engineer brain cells to respond to light. So that gives us this kind of light sensitive switch over a given memory in the brain so that when we funnel laser light into the brain, the memory turns on. When we turn the light off, the memory goes away. Now, any time a memory is formed in a mouse's brain, they'd be able to control it with a flip of a switch, or in this case, a little zap of light. To test this out, they put a mouse in a box, and let's call it box A. And it was a safe box, and it was a nice box where the mouse is able to go about its day and just chill without being bothered. Then they put the mouse in a totally different box, box B, one that's like a different color and it smells different and it even sounds different. And then they zapped its brain with the memory of box A, the safe neutral box. Here's what Steve and his partner Shu did next. While we were reactivating that completely bland neutral memory, we gave the animals uh, some mild foot shocks. Like it doesn't hurt them or anything. It's like, it's almost like static in this case, where we give them this aversive stimuli to update, in this case, the memory of what's being artificially recalled. So the neutral environment. So in box B, when it was getting these foot shocks, the mouse cowered and froze because it was admittedly scared. It was forming this fearful memory thinking like, dang, this box kind of sucks and I keep getting shocked for no reason. Like, what gives? But then, when the mouse returned to the first box, Happy Box A, the craziest thing happened. It immediately froze in fear. Even though this was supposed to be the safe box and the box where the mouse could just chill and it had never been shocked there. Which meant the mouse linked the memory of Box A, the safe neutral box, with the foot shocks it would get from Box B. That's when Steve and Shu realized they successfully implanted a false memory. Boom. Inception. So it was all one big way of really demonstrating at the level of brain cells that we could go in and not just artificially turn a memory back on, but we could do so and then warp its contents in the direction of something that is fearful and negative or something that's rewarding and positive. That, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to take a deep breath, but that is <laughs> so cool. It is, it is mind-blowing that, that you can do something like that. And like, you know, as strange as a false memory is, you can replicate it. You can trigger memories and you can kind of cause all of this stuff that, you know, people wouldn't even think is possible. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm completely with you. Like I, 
this stuff still feels like science fiction. I mean, that project was in 2013, uh, which admittedly feels ages ago, even though it was just eight years ago. And by now, this idea of being able to change the contents of memories or artificially turn them on or even artificially turn them off or erase them altogether uh, is pretty common in the field now. Steve literally turns science fiction into real life with his mind-blowing experiments. But it's still kind of spooky to know that humans can naturally create false memories all the time. So if memories can hijack our brains without us even realizing it, should we be trusting them? This depends on if you're a cup is half full or a cup is half empty kind of person, because on the one hand, that we have memory is like a miracle of biology. It's, it's incredible that, you know, our, our brain has this unbelievable capacity of time traveling back to any moment of our past uh, or even imagining ourselves in the future, right? It's like past, present, and future, you have conscious mental control over it in our brain with regards to our experience. When we think about things like imagination or creativity, like false memories might be the price that we pay for being the imaginative creatures that we actually are. So imagination was something that was way more valuable in comparison to the trouble that false memories may have gotten us into or, or can get us into. So I guess I can blame my wonky memory for my hesitancy around dogs and all of those lost sweaters, but... I gotta give it some credit, too, for giving me pretty cool superpowers, like time traveling and predicting the future. After hearing about Steve's experiments on mice, it makes me wonder if neuroscientists are anywhere close to trying this out on humans. I think that we're already there in the sense that you know, manipulating a memory is something that can be done in the lab setting pretty easily nowadays. There's a lot of different therapies where recalling a memory is is part of the therapy where it's at the center there so in that sense you know we're of course not going to go and start genetically engineering humans and putting optic fibers in the brain and doing optogenetics i think that all of that for a million ethical reasons uh and even practical reasons is just not the right course of action yeah i don't know if i'm on board with the thought of someone zapping around my brain and poking around my memories. But Steve says he imagines memory manipulation being used to help people with brain disorders. Ideally, we would be able to administer memory manipulation in a clinical setting where it's safe and can be administered responsibly, the same way that a psychiatrist won't administer an antidepressant to the entire population of Boston. We would administer antidepressants to a person living with depression. And by keeping it in that kind of medical clinical setting, I think it can be administered responsibly the same way that any drug would as well too. So that's the part that I find super science fiction-y is that not only can we go in and control memories and change the contents of memories, but we can use that knowledge for good. Like we can use that knowledge now to try to either repair memories or restore memories or bring back memories that were once thought to be lost, for example, or even protect memories, or even upping positive memories or positive emotions in a, in a person living with depression or uh, debilitated by a bout of anxiety. So memory manipulation could maybe help people suffering from neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's or dementia, which makes them slowly lose their ability to remember. 
like my great-grand in New Zealand. She has advanced dementia, and I know some of my mom's favorite childhood memories are of spending summers with her, but now she doesn't remember my mom anymore, or me and Kian. It's difficult because it feels like the shared memories we have, they're very colorful in my world, but for her, they're just like gray, like gray just fading to black. It's like you almost need two people to share a memory for you to know that it's real. And when she can't remember half of the memory, sometimes I wonder if I'm remembering things accurately. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, it's important that although she might see it in gray, I think that shouldn't let you have that wonder and that magic taken away from those memories because you're the you're the you're holding the last remaining copies and I think you can treasure it for the both of you. Oh, that's so true. I'm holding the last copies. And you know, when I talk to her, I kind of describe what the last copies look and feel like in the hope that it'll just spark a little bit of that color to come back into her memory. So, yeah, that's a really good insight, Ty. It makes me so sad to think that you can start having doubts about the memories you've shared with someone because they can't remember them themselves. And for those who struggle with memory loss, it must be really scary to have your most treasured memories fade away to the point where you lose connections with the people that matter most to you, including yourself. So even though I can get frustrated about misremembering things sometimes, I'm really lucky to be able to hold copies of my memories in full color, even if some of them are the freaky-deaky ones that may or may not have been implanted in my sleep. Ty asked why. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. This show is produced by Eunice Kim, Rachel Levy-McLaughlin, and Judy Z. Gu. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Graham McDonald is our sound designer, and the theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my papa, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mama, Nikki Poole. Also, a special shout out to my brother, Kian, for not getting mauled by a dog. I love you, Kiki. Today, my guests were Ayana Thomas and Steve Ramirez. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.